I can teach you how to bewitch the mind and ensnare the senses. I can tell you how to bottle fame, brew glory, and even put a stopper in death. Welcome to Snape Chat, the voice of the Snape Dome, the podcast where we discuss all things Snape, always. Join us as we dive into the world of the bravest man we ever knew in art, fanfic, meta, and more. Obviously. This is Snape-centric with episode 33. On this show, I chat with author, artist, and game maker, Acid. Then Acid reads from one of his stories. Enjoy the show. This is Snape-centric, and I'm here with Acid also known as Burn or Acid Burn, artist, writer, game creator, just multi-talented. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. This is Acid, and I'm delighted to be here. Delighted to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about. So let's go ahead. Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, okay. I am tuning in from California right now, though I did not always live here. The weather's great. <laughs> the weather's always great, thankfully. And my day job is very much not related to writing, drawing, or fandoms. It allowed me to immigrate and have a reasonably well-off economically life. And currently I'm in the position in my life where time is in short supply, but everything else is good. And speaking of time and short supply, a lot of my hobbies or just Evenings and weekends are spent either drawing or writing, so no complaints there. In a different life, I would probably be making movies or comics. Currently, currently it's a hobby, and I'm thankful that fandoms exist to uh, support that hobby. Yes. What brought you to the world of Harry Potter? Hmm. <laughs> That's a long story. I've been around the fandom for quite a while, since early this century, and I recall that way back when... I ran across a popular book. I think it was book three of the series, and it was an easy read. The world building was vivid, and it was easy to escape into it and just mindlessly follow along something interesting. So starting with that, I went from exploring Marauder's Era to exploring Snape as a great character, uh, because it was interesting to see his narrative in a way antagonists' points of view are interesting in a way, like watching Wicked the Musical and comparing it to the standard storyline would be fascinating to explore. With a well-rounded antagonist, if they're built out well, you can pretty much flip them to a protagonist and watch them struggle to do the right thing all along in their head as they progress through the storyline. So from that perspective, there is no antagonists in in the stories, it's just the point of view character and their motivations are quite clear and reasonable to them. So at the time, my close fandom friend, Cynic, who is a Snape fan, steered me a lot into conversations of his motivations and what drove him and what his rich inner world would be like since he's quite introverted. And that was interesting. And that kept my attention. Along the same lines, 
Harry makes a good default protagonist with a delightful limited point of view if paired and thrown into the story as a protagonist and he's very opinionated, doesn't pay much attention to or pays attention very selectively, which makes it interesting to play with if the points of view are alternating. And getting them together and just watching the train wreck, well, first of all, getting characters together who don't normally end up together is interesting. There's a challenge in finding those small steps, tidbits of what they may have in common, emphasizing that, building a relationship and trust in each other from scratch. It's an amazing puzzle of human emotions and it's rewarding and fascinating and it's it's a work of art and love um, comes down to that also for a particularly petty reason uh, jk rowling would not like snarry so there's that and um, quite enjoying writing it all right that's pretty much the summary of things oh that's interesting you've been creating in the fandom for a long time I saw some of your works in DeviantArt were as early as 2004, and it looks like you uploaded a lot of stories to AO3 in the early days of 2010. So I'm guessing they were maybe somewhere else to start with. Definitely so. Uh, My days in the fandom were absolutely before AO3 even existed. If you want to explore that part of fandom history, it would be mainly live journal content, which was then exported out to Dreamwidth or Insane Journal or any variety of LJ that sprung up after after all that mess. And that in combination with archive.org preserved links to dead sites uh, would be the best reference along with uh, ship-specific big hosting in the pre-03 days. I want to say that my Harry Potter fandom journey started in 2002 or so. There are some records or traces of me posting short stories. It would have been just random characters, probably Ron Dobby. I recall a Snape and Charlie Weasley friendship. They bonded over chess, so that was a short story. That was the longest at the time. English is my second language, and I was, due to that, I was fond of writing memorable or unusual uh, hundred word uh, travels back in the day because I didn't feel comfortable creating anything longer. I didn't feel like I would edit it to sound like a native speaker to my satisfaction. Then one of those travels kind of grew and exploded into a novel length. So I'm fortunate that I branched out. Yeah, we're very fortunate too, because you've written so many good long fics and well, even one shots. Yeah. I think I reached the point where I realized that practice uh, was the only thing that would improve my, me being unsure with writing in English as a second language. And I got there at the end. took a while. Did you write in your native language at all? Nothing that would have been a fandom related. Yeah. I immigrated relatively early on and switched. English is my primary language now, but it was just leftover uncertainty that kept me from tackling larger works for so long. How has the fandom changed over the years? Mm, Good question. Uh, So (laughs) I remember Snape and Harry exploding from this niche underground bunch of disconnected queer writers who were amazing at coming out with plot lines to get them together because you have to be an amazing and dedicated writer to actually take on that thought puzzle because it would be a lot of 
planning and writing out a lot of scenes to do character development to actually get them to that point. Then the canon had Aquaman's lessons, and that pretty much exploded into a popular ship. I'm still surprised that it's one of the most popular slash ships for Harry Potter. We sort of lost the Snape Matter vibes, thanks to canon actually establishing that uh, Snape was grew up poor. And we gained a few more shades of gray tropes. And I'm not sure I like that part, but here's that. Personally, to me, it's interesting to explore Snape's childhood and his past and basically him transcending, going from just poor upbringing to something that is middle class and struggling to fit into that and just traversing two worlds and spending all that time and effort hiding where he came from, as well as never really escaping it at the at the end or just later in life. Fandom in general, back to changes in fandom. At the moment, it feels like we have simultaneously less purity police and more purity police in different ways. Back then, folks were afraid of, like, there was a fear of being outed online to friends and family and just people who knew you day to day. And there was this mutual camaraderie from just feeling like you're on the margins in internet spaces. These days, people are more concerned about uh, scrutiny and disapproval of their fandom peers. And it feels like we're attacking one another in spaces which were previously a safe es escape for slash writers. Also, it feels like we have to teach uh, the new generation that works of fiction are not reality all over again. And it's tedious in a way that controversial themes like violence and assault in fiction and in media get a free pass uh, as opposed to sexual themes, especially queer themes. We're not so far removed from the generation where people were basically afraid of losing custody of their kids if their online interests were revealed or generation where it was far more controversial to show two guys holding hands and wielding guns against one another. So... I remember distinctly one summer, I believe, there was a cutoff deadline when all explicit works with under-18 protagonists became a big deal to disclaim due to newly passed laws in Australia, I believe, at the time. And previously, the old enough meant just ambiguous teenager, uh, 16 and up. And suddenly, there were the headers with 18 and up from the author warnings all over the place, and they were not optional. So that was one memorable change that sticks out. I also remember the lemon and lime, lime rating from the early this century kind of going away and the pre-O3 chaos of disappearing websites and uh, the ever-present copyright lawsuit fears that are no longer here, thankfully, as much thank you thanks to AO3. And uh, back then, people were more would have been mortified if their fandom handles were somehow connected to their actual identities. And uh, now it feels like there's TikTok videos and people's faces used as fandom avatars much more often. So that's the part of fandom history that I'm celebrating more and more of not being, being no longer there. So good changes and bad changes happened. Yeah. Is the Snape Harry pairing your OTP? Good question. It would not be, but I have too many unfinished drafts to write. <laughs> no, it's uh, honestly, uh, it's 
one of the dynamics I would be interested in if I were to crave reading romance because it would keep things interesting, problematic, and rewarding for the character development arcs, and it's easy to spin it into an unexpected happy ending, despite all odds. It's also familiar territory. I know how they think, plan, operate, fit together, how they start arguments by now, and I don't have to go far to research the canon. I like that dynamic. I, If I had to write something quick, they lend themselves well to getting something together that's quality, but quickly. When it comes to reading, it's definitely not the only fandom or ship that I follow. In fact, I'm trending more and more into reading less of scenario and writing it more, which, which is helpful because I um, don't have much spare time to, to spend on fandom interests and I'm trying to prioritize wisely. Oh, sure. What do you find most compelling about them? Let's see. Mm. Let's start with Snape. He's a survivor. He survives at all costs and he craves redemption. That part is compelling because it makes for some interesting character motivations and learning to progress the story forward. For Harry, I have to say contrasting parts of him are optimism and belief in the best of people or belief in some sort of happy ending that's hard to keep past your 20s and also with the child he he had he didn't really lose that optimism the way that snape lost it also the contrast of being the boy in the cupboard before he became the hero and as for both of them together it's the fact that they can click together quite well and be good for one another, surprisingly, miraculously, if they only took the time to get to know one another without the buildup of that initial animosity. They shouldn't really work. There are so many factors at play that would support them just mixing like oil and water. And yet it's possible with the right plot to make that magic happen. And only 1% chance that they mesh together quite well. They become two sides of one coin. Um, the chemistry and the spark and the connotation, the possibility of developing that healing and salvation or growth for both of them, emotional and just character progression-wise, is unbelievably compelling. It's amazing to see that happen and be a part of that journey for them. And it can happen in various ways. So there's hundred various ways to explore that as the fandom, the number of fix on AO3 proof, there's probably going to be much more. <laughs> All right. Were you an artist or a writer first? Mm, well, okay. I am, I guess I'm a creator. I remember drawing, but uh, I also remember writing and illustrating something as a kid that was a story. I think it's just, I'm a storyteller in whichever form it comes from, comes with at the time. I like multimedia storytelling with a blend of art and text. And I also enjoy making comics and choose your own adventure games to tell a story. So I've used that before and I hope to do so soon again. If we're talking fiction and English for quite a while, I was not very comfortable creating large works, but I was more comfortable with art since that skill carried across languages and cultures. For a while there, I was mostly comfortable writing drabbles of short stories until one of them, Price, blew up into novel-length work, which was the first work that Zinnick and I co-written. And it's 
funny how it's unexpectedly happened because of the way that the plot bunnies bite and don't let go. Many of your early works were written with Cynic. What was that process like? Very fun. There was no Google Docs at the time, so it was much less of a synchronous process uh, unless we wanted to chat over Yahoo Chat uh, to run through dialogue first and put them in some sort of scene outline. There was about two hours difference in our respective time zones. We didn't live nearby yet. Uh, so I remember staying up uh, late quite a lot. So just working on something up to midnight in my time zone was quite common. I was a night owl back in the day, so it wasn't big disruption. Um, and it was definitely a welcome one. Over chat, there was uh, that advantage of back and forth feedback immediacy that was much faster and we could proofread one another's early passages with a fresh eye, which uh, sped up the proofreading significantly. Because uh, usually if you're proofreading your own work, you have to spend a few days to forget it first in order to recognize the mistakes. And uh, with a second person, it's much easier to fill in. It's also much faster to get the draft out with two contributors whose strengths and weaknesses in writing align and complement. And uh, that happened a lot with us. There was a lot of uh, Microsoft Word docs exchanged back and forth with tracking turned on. So we traded them back and forth with a turnaround time of about a day for the next round of edits. So I would receive the draft, acknowledge and approve whatever edits were made by Cynic and then add my own portion and send it back. So that was the uh, working process. It became much easier once uh, Google Docs happened, of course. Oh, I'm sure. And would Discord also be helpful in that sort of situation? Or uh, What was the... Uh, uh, Discord. Discord. Uh, <laughs> Discord is a very early development, I believe. Uh, we would use chat at this point. Discord might help. It just depends on the chat platform. I think that uh, Discord came around at the time where we could actually talk in person quite extensively. So oh. there wasn't much of that in use. Well, that's nice. Yeah, it's a good place to be. Being in the same time zone and kind of in the same physical location definitely helps. Mm -hmm. uh, how would you describe your personal writing style? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Let's see. Let me think on it a, a bit. I guess at the end of the day, it would be, ah, just finish it. <laughs> uh -huh. Just a lot of things unfinished that I need to wrap up. A quick summary would be limited point of views of usually male protagonists with hero complex and a problematic love interest. Um, it also trends toward awkward, just hard pinned on the sleeve comedy and a bit of a drama introduced with vivid visuals and quirky humor. I think that about covers it. All right. How are your ideas for stories developed? Let's see. I guess at this point, I'm faster at drawing things than I am at writing. So I'm guessing if it can start as an artwork, uh, it would probably be started as an artwork first. If it can be drawn, it will likely be drawn. But if it's a story, it's likely dying to get out. Some stories lend themselves well to comic form. So I go with that route. And... Some have to become a short story, even though I make them into an interactive, longer fic, just in the interest of time. With the medium, I guess 
whatever's quickest right now does play a significant role, but since I don't have much spare time and do like to finish something, the very often the idea for a story is just a challenge. I see something that is impossible to write or just manage well, and I go, hold my beer. Okay, I can do it in 60K. <laughs> Watch me. So um, that part is fun. Just a challenge. Yeah. Some of your works deal with gender. What makes that particular theme interesting to you? Hmm. I don't know if it's interesting or it's a bit of a write you, what you know situation. So it doesn't take a lot of research. It does take research, but I can, I have kind of a basis to start with. I've served as a sensitivity reader for several trans mask protagonist drafts as well. And I guess selfishly, I want there to be more relatable trans protagonists anywhere, including the fandom, various fandoms. If I ever do complete a sequel to Measure, it would probably be a very different story. That said, that was one of my early ones. And most of it was just this claustrophobic and dramatic rendition of early transitions. And most of, if I were to write a sequel, it would probably focus on the drama and healing of Snape's issues this time around. And Harry's drama would probably sort of just take a backseat to that because he'd be in a much better place psychologically. In the beginning, he completely took over the airspace or the radio space with his issues for most of measure and Snape mostly in a supportive role. I'd like to pull that back a notch and gain some of that equilibrium back in the sequel. And there really isn't enough trans protagonists who are in that supportive role uh, who basically are the ones holding things together while every, everyone around them falls apart. So I like to vary it up a bit and actually introduce that. I'm pretty proud of the Snape and Dumbledore stories in the gen fic that I've written for one of the fests, the of Mercury and Canvas Ghosts short story. That's one of the stories that kind of a proof that if I press through a short story on a single weekend deadline, they tend to come out relatively well about half the time. And that was one of those times. Now, creating the Bravest Man comic, that must have been a major undertaking. Did you have everything planned out ahead of time? In a sense. So early on, I just kind of asked myself, if I have any chance of actually finishing it or taking that to completion, the monumental undertaking of multi-chapter comic with about eight or nine panels in each chapter was daunting at the time. So I just resolved to tell the quickest romance story with a happy ending that I could, and uh, but make it sound more complicated than it really is. And also, I had to force myself to draw really, really fast without worrying about perfection or putting in details, just get it to completion or to readable what sort of viewable status as soon as possible, because the rest of the chapters were still there to finish. Yeah, I, that was... I think the first work that I really knew about you, and uh, it is definitely worth checking out. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, if you are after a good introduction to Snape and Harry in general and dynamic between them, that probably dwelled into some a potential story about that quite well. I'm also pretty 
proud of the way that Harry's coming out story turned out. That was something I was able to focus on and explore in detail. So I'm glad that comic form lent itself to that well. Let's see, you also created Mirror, which is a video game with Renpi. Renpi, yes. Renpi, okay. Can you tell us about that? Well, uh, Renpi is library that allows you to create a choice and consequence games with oh. graphics uh, relatively fast. Think of it as PowerPoints, something that can be whatever's possible with PowerPoint would be possible here, introducing some sort of interactivity, clicking buttons, making choices, as well as keeping track of certain variables, certain achievements. Also manipulating images and animation on screen with music or sounds to go with it. So, and Pi, of course, is, stands for Python. Mirror specifically means that hmm, it was a bit of a challenge because that was the first project like that that I tried. So it was as a writer or an artist, you sort of can follow the instructions of those that came before you. And there are tutorials online. Here, it was an unknown territory and in a lot of ways, uncharted one. So it was nice to make something or approach something I didn't know how to make before and develop that system from scratch, develop that process, and then take a long project to completion over the course of a summer. If you're ever in that position where you have to basically come up with something and don't know how to do it. The key is to come up with a working prototype, even if it's just uh, one slide, two slides, and a set of buttons and uh, stick figures on the screen. And that working prototype, just the key is to come up with a repetitive but quick preview of the work and be able to arrive there quickly and watch things change as you make changes. And also, you have to just repetitively start playing through and clicking through the screens and add on in the moment because making sure that the storyline is interesting to you as a player specifically is key because otherwise other people would pick up, first of all, would pick up on that and tune out, but also because your own interest in the project would wane otherwise and it's there's more chance that it would be abandoned. So it really has to be something one cares about deeply to to actually get it to completion state because that's quite a lot of work and uh, a lot of repetitive work to finish. Yeah, it. I've I've played with it a bit and it's yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah, I'm glad how it came together. The visuals definitely didn't start out as that detailed, and uh, I think it ended up being four distinct storylines that you can play through four or five. I think it started off with two or three, and uh, I had to fill in the rest in a hurry. But once the storyline progression and structure was there, it got easier. Also, I had the help of beta players very early on, and I'm very thankful for that, for their help. In your recent long fic, Spell for the Lost and Lonely, Harry and Snape hook up in an underground magical kink club, but they're both using polyjuice and they don't recognize each other what defines them as them to you yeah the spell for the lost and lonely was such a fun idea to write because that's one of those hold my beer i can make this work stories that 
basically has such a wild premise that turned out to be a story of slowly developing connections. Basically, just the fact that they didn't have that animosity, the history behind them was not there, and they were able to get to know one another as just two people brand new to this relationship and actually had a second chance to build some sort of a relationship this time around. So it was interesting to watch them do so. And the thing is, they didn't look like themselves or how they would remember themselves. And they didn't use didn't use their names. They used different names. There was key elements that I had to stick to to actually make them recognizable. And that was a lot of dialogue, of course, and a lot of internal internal dialogue, depending on uh, which one of them was actually driving the scene. So on Snape's part, there was a lot of blend of sarcasm and mistrust, that paranoia of staying anonymous. And that was contrasted by Harry's optimism and excited excitement because he was in a new place and he was exploring all the all the fun stuff that he ran across that he never seen before. And he's easygoing, so he makes friends easy. The common theme uh, for them both that usually comes through that I end up exploring somehow is them being dispensable pawns in the war and the tough childhoods in both cases in uh, different ways but quite similar also quite similar tempers and uh, well tempers wise it's easy to get rise out of one or both of them and they end up kind of spurring that part of themselves on it's easy to basically get them started and down the path of arguments also senses of humor Harry and Snape actually have a pretty similar sense of humor and they would appreciate each other's humor if they only had been exposed to it more. Like that slightly dry, slightly childish, slightly dark with a bit more dark maybe amplified on Snape's part and a bit more dry. And anonymity would put them on an even ground and gives them a fresh start to explore that while they're still them, but in a different skin. So a different set of circumstances can actually get them to work together instead of just spending, wasting time seething and grinding their teeth over old grudges and annoyances and years and years of that turbulent history. That was a plot device that was the quickest way to actually get them advance the, their character relationship forward, and it was quite interesting. Also, the fact, of the interesting part about the spell for the lost and lonely is it was a romance story that kind of took things backwards. Usually you would have that moment of awkward flirting and then possibly a first kiss and uh, maybe, a, you know, introduce a sex scene toward the end as a to wrap things up. This pretty much just flipped it, flipped it all around and started with the ending. Yeah. So that fun to explore and then build intimacy in a different way. Would you read to us from one of your stories? Very good question, and I do have uh, quite a long recording ready, but it would probably come at the end. So it's going to be the beginning of a story called Theriac Therapy, and it's a short story that lends itself well to, well, to reading the first part aloud, and I hope that you'll enjoy it when you hear it. What mediums do you like to work with when creating art? I usually do digital a lot because it's quicker uh, and less cleanup. I tend to work with free software. It's a pretty conscious choice to stick to open source. 
Lately, I've been working with acrylics. In the past, I worked a lot with oils and also mixed media of watercolor and or uh, markers as a base with color pencils and whiteout or uh, pens, color pens on top of that. So that's that's a pretty easy and forgiving medium to work with that usually look good at the end. I also sculpt. Um, I do various mixed media crafts as well. If you hand me a crochet hook and some supplies and a theme or a project, I can probably create anything with that without a starting pattern. And in a sense that it's more of a sculpting this to the level of sculpting. Like uh, the last thing I made was a skeletal creature with a bird beak and an old fashioned skirt and a chest full of blue butterflies. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, it gets quite elaborate. Uh-huh. Uh, that's neat. How has your art changed over the years? I'd like to think it improved, even though it improved slowly. I have a better grasp of anatomy and blending colors. I also learned what not to waste most time on details-wise and what to emphasize with extra detail. Usually there's a focal point, and that's quite distinct in each drawing that requires a lot of detail versus a lot of empty space that doesn't need to be paid attention to. And um, with a focal point with portraits, it's usually eyes. In the beginning, I didn't add enough detail to the pupils and the highlights. And um, now I know better. I also learned layouts a bit better. They're more fluid uh, than they were in the beginning. And I know how to work with large resolution drafts. I guess better computers over the years helped that as well. Let's talk about some of your art. All right. Well, okay. I uh, I guess I can think about a few recent ones that I can talk about. They're all on my Deviant Art uh, under Burn account instead of B. Uh, it's a six instead of a B because I just have to be contrary and it's unique enough. So six U R N Deviant Art. One of the recent works I created would be the Crownless, uh, which is a picture of Snape reading in bed. Um, it was basically exercise in anatomy and the way that the light hits the skin and blends it, as well as just creating things with shadow shapes and making it work when it's a human being, basically, in the picture. I enjoyed it because it's a bit of a met, very much meta because uh, Snape is reading Lord of the Rings. So the blending of the fandoms. Also, to go along with the same theme, I did a follow-up Harry piece, and uh, that one turned out to be much more ironic. This was before Chuck Tingle was actually on the bestseller list for his more serious work. And so Harry is reading Chuck Tingle and uh, a specific work that is satire on Harry Potter that supports trans rights. So <laughs> that was quite a... It was uh, quite a meta piece, and it was more of a, much more of a satire statement. And I am quite amused at to this day that a deviant art has marked that particular work as censored, as uh, higher rating, and oh. Snape reading Lord of the Rings was not. <laughs> oh goodness! <laughs> there was a bit of, I guess you can. Uh, That's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some apparently some. Themes are more controversial than others. 
The next work I want to talk about is Saving Severs, and uh, it was one of my recent paintings that came together well. It was basically, I guess it's two figures. Harry's hovering on the broomstick, and he's supporting Snape as Snape is falling backwards a bit uh, in a gesture of unusual gesture of trust. And there's a kiss that is really relatively hard to achieve in the way that they're positioned. Uh, I managed to keep that layout pretty simple against the sky and just a bit of a horizon with a what appears to be spinner's end like oh yes sort of detail but a lot of it is just snape's umbrella and lily's flower two flowers falling down and just a reference to the only bright spot of color really is the red of harry's scarf i'm quite proud of the references i could pack into it but also um, the level of detail that turned out pretty well Moving on to something that is not quite all art. There was a comic done recently that is titled The Summoning. That was done for one of the fests. It is set to one of the poems that I enjoyed coming across by a poet who usually posts the work on Reddit. It's um, very recent. The work is by Poem for Your Sprog. And I was able to take m most of that poem and actually set a storyline to it with that is mainly told through images, which was quite nice. It aligned very well together for that very uncertain, moody theme that is that came together well. Hmm. I guess my works wouldn't be complete if I didn't mention one of my hand series. So... Let's just talk about one of the last ones in the series called Take My Hand. It's an illustration to Price. Basically, the premise is that Harry is a ghost, by, but by interacting with Snape, he sort of regains that sensation of humanity and becomes more human than the glimpse of life that he had before dying young. So the, uh, the images of just two hands... Harry reaching out with his ghostly hand becoming solid and human as he holds Snape's. That is also the most pirated work of mine that somehow attracts a lot of religious blogs that sort of claim it as... Oh, man. Claim it and use it as a way to fundraise and pretty much just illustrate something, any Bible stories. I find it both frustrating but also and annoying as it is it is also very ironic at some point i had to basically repost it in a more visible way so image searches would actually land on the background on how it was created and i remember it being used in just works to promote non-profits i would never support in real life so oh sure gosh so that was that's probably the most visible work of mine right now for better or for worse one other one we've talked about the bravest man enough so i will kind of skip over that one one of the older works that i've done that turned out well was the painting and the ghost and uh, it's basically the portrait of severus snape and on the background staring facing the reader as well as the ghost of young harry haunting hogwarts halls uh, in front of it and it's basically the idea of them finding 
each other's company interesting in a sense that they kind of have time on their hands. It was done very early on before book three or book four were even in the picture, I believe. Three may have been around. So the idea of Snape portrait was a, a bit prophetic. <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, I just find irony in it. And it was also something that was done quite well from portrait skill perspective when I was just starting out. And that portion, that just turned out well, unexpectedly well for me. So it was artwork where I could see, uh, easily see myself progress very easily over a very short time. So that was a good thing to see. Oh, yes. We'll have links to, to all of these works, as well as acid stories on AO3. You should definitely check them out. Okay. Uh, do we want, let's see. And did we go over most of the um, questionnaire so far? Just Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about theriac therapy. All right. Well, <laughs> let me bring it up just to be sure. It was a bit of a, a very unusual story as in I ran across prompt um, that I could just look at, uh, that I just looked at and, and I just went, okay, I can make it work. Just as a challenge, it's going to be nothing, nothing heavy, nothing too elaborate. I'm just going to write something that is lighthearted and fun. So mainly it was just somebody's prompt to work in theme of first time and seduction in into a story and make it interesting. So I looked at it and went, okay, I can do that. Uh, how hard can it be? I can churn something out, small word count and like short amount of time then i was very fortunate that i had beta readers and alpha readers contribute to it and actually prompt me to revise and emphasize certain bits uh, and rethink others and one of those beta readers is of course perverse idol pi uh, who spent a lot of personal time just going through and suggesting Amazing things right right off the bat to improve it uh, significantly. So that helped a lot. And there was a lot of edits that basically originated from that initial feedback from BI. I'm glad I was able to follow and incorporate that and that I had that early contribution from them. That's great. Harry has such a sense of joy in that. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was good to have a lighthearted story. It was just very, very joyful, very butterflies in your stomach sort of sensation that just carried through the entire theme. One thing I'm proud of achieving is there's actually a concrete coherent storyline that goes through the entire woven through the entire thing. And there are bits and pieces of it being hinted all the way throughout, but you don't get to actually know what the catch, the main theme is until you get to the final part, because the story is actually all in Harry's point of view, and he doesn't get to know it until the very end. So it was fun to, to kind of weave through the entire storytelling from the beginning to the end. And that actually didn't come together until the very end. I just glanced at all the themes I was throwing into each portion and went, okay, this is the only ending that makes sense to end on. And it's it's just 
made all the pieces come together. I will not I will not spoil it for you. <laughs> no. No, you'll have to go and read it. Follow links on our reading page at snakechatpodcast.com and lots of good things to look at and to read. Tell us a bit about your current drafts. What are you working on now? Oh man. Okay. So I've been quite busy and some of the works that are not yet posted, I am pretty much looking forward to sharing them. Uh, so this and upcoming month is filled with back-to-back with multiple fest deadlines, which I sort of brought upon myself. I overcommitted, but I'm also, I'm pretty good at churning out work under pressure, and it's prompting me to work incredibly fast on very tight deadlines. So in a sense, that's good. I went from... Well, one of the drafts is already posted and is revealed, and I'll talk a- about it uh, a bit later. But the current one that is currently haunting my brain is I went from a 13K to nearly 30 in the past week in the course of... Wow. It's not yet 10 days, but yeah, it's been pretty brutal to piece things together without any time left for to procrastinate, but... It's also, we're talking about full-time job with relatively lengthy days, plus evenings and weekends to write. So I've been staying up a lot. I do look forward to seeing the results when it's posted, because by the time this interview is published in a few days, it's probably going to be revealed and wrapped up. I can talk about it a bit with the expectation that this is probably going to, the time is going to align pretty well. The working title is uh, The Bogart, and it's based on the old draft that Cynic and I never ended up finishing around the time Book 7 came out or even before. So it's the 30K story, monster story that took over my life in the past week or so to in order to finish it. I am one scene and a lot of cleanup away from being done, and I'm really looking forward to letting it out and just letting it fly. Yeah, that one's... It's good to see old drafts that's been lingering out there, gathering dust with uh, worthwhile scenes actually being wrapped up into a larger storyline built around them. The first draft that I that's already made public is Shapes in the Deep, which is a collaboration with Taxonomic based on their early un- unfinished draft that I took over and took to completion on a short notice. It's my contributions besides that is probably introducing a, another fandom to it. Uh, so the draft is based on Dredge. Uh, it's a very obscure video game uh, that only has like had 12 finished works on AO3 aside from this one. This, is, uh, this made it finished work number 13 and probably one of the longest ones out there. It's pretty much a habit of mine by now. It's the second work. Uh, Snape Harry work that is based off of a video game. And usually I tend to incorporate lore and setting and some of the references, but not the characters. The characters stay this strictly in the uh, scenario world. The third story I will then move on to after this week wraps up is September deadline. So I should be in a better shape to take things easy and actually spend a weekend not writing and probably attending a Pride event before the summer's end. I do need to go back and finish the Bat series because I'm only one chapter or so away from wrapping it up. And that's my most achievable draft that can not be work in progress anymore. 
but that's not on the schedule. And with best of intentions, I was actually planning to finish it this year, but suddenly I took an unexpected detour with the fast commitments and I am finishing the unfinished drafts, but it's not the ones that I planned to work on. So after that, I am I am looking forward to doing more work on a choose your own adventure story, which I am piecing together entirely as a AO3 text with some heavy duty magic to squeeze as much as possible out of AO3's limited HTML to actually make it interactive. And there's some heavy duty magic with Google Sheets spreadsheet formulas to make things manageable and generate things. I look forward to seeing where I can take it. It's, I guess the premise is a bit like Harry as Orpheus navigating the dream world through pensive uh, memories to resurrect Severus Snape, who is not quite a ghost this time around, but the storyline is quite similar. It's kind of a, a journey through the underworld, or some version of the underworld. I look forward to coming back to that one. It's been shaping up together quite well. Yeah, I'm going to stop now before I reveal too much. Thank you oh, for that okay. question. I did put this, what plans do you have for Snape and Harry in the near future? Oh my. The, okay. It's kind of an overlap, isn't it? Or do you think it's okay? Um, I think I really need to finish a few things. <laughs> that's pretty much um, That's pretty much the goal right now. That and not burn out writing too much i don't think i quite have as much art planned i've i've done a lot of art heavy works in the beginning of the year and writing took a backseat i am slowly coming back to writing fiction and actually for the first time succeeding in thinking through and wrapping up plots so i'm just gonna put that to use and navigate that lucky streak as long as it holds so I'd say that hmm, I'm going to throw them into many challenges to actually be stuck with one another and cooperate and watch the train wreck turn into a happy ending in many more various ways because they are fun. Uh, They're a fun challenge to get together in a single scene and just watch the dialogue flow. Great. Where can people find you online? A wonderful and very important question. Thank you for asking that. I am Acidburn. That is spelled with a one and a six because I have to be contrary and I would not be able to pronounce it either with uh, numbers thrown in there, but it's AC1D6URN on Tumblr and also on that train wreck formerly known as Twitter. On Tumblr, you can also stalk my site blog, HumbleNug. Um, on DeviantArt, of course, I'm known as Burn, the shortened version with a six. Acid on AO3 and Dream Dreamwidth. There is a placeholder LJ account that is no longer used, but uh, mainly it's AO3 and Tumblr these days. Now this um, podcast. Yeah, I was wondering when I was first uh, exploring your works that how were you able to have the word acid as your name with but the answer is, is that you've been doing it for quite a while. I've joined early. I was one of the earlier people to join the uh, closed beta when they sent out the invites on AO3. It's just nobody else took that. So, And uh, on LJ, I believe at some point I waited for the username to become available and just claimed it on Dreamworks. 
same thing. I joined at the very early stage of it, just getting started. And uh, back when things were pretty obscure and unused. Well, Acid, thank you so much for joining me and, and sharing your work with us. Thank you so much. I'm hoping that the read out version of Theric Therapy is enjoyable to read. I've read as much of it as I could to fit in fit it into the podcast. So there's that to look forward to. And yes, thank you for having me and for keeping this going and starting this podcast and releasing more and more of the uh, interviews. I really appreciate the dedication that is needed to contribute to the fandom on and um, with that much dedication and effort. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I think we're pretty much done. In that case, well, um, happy snarring to everyone. Please enjoy further works, and I hope that some of these inspire people to create their own. That was a great interview. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Now listen in as Acid reads from his story, Theriac Therapy. Hello, I am Acid, and today I will be reading one of my older stories. It's called Theriac Therapy. To summarize, one day the young defense professor Potter encountered the greasy git. Paired with dessert, he did not quiet bargain for. Um, its kink is first time and slow hot seduction. Thank you to Drawlight, without whom the story wouldn't exist, and to P.I. who helped remake it into a tale worth telling. Theriac. It's a paste formerly used as an antidote to snake venom made from 60 to 70 different drugs, pulverized and mixed with honey. Also, it is a trickle. I've been told it's a dessert. Part 1. It starts ever so slow. Slow as a hot trickle running down the length of a spoon handle. Slow as the fumes rising from a near bubbling cauldron as one stirs it counterclockwise twelve times with a steady hand. Slow as a stumble leading up to the final fall as the snake fangs rip into one's throat when a gasp of frantic desperation lasts for eternity and all life flashes before one's eyes on the shrieking shack floor. Death dodged and stalled and stoppered. One might even speculate that this wild, inappropriate, precious spark had never really been kindled at all 
just escalated, amplified, step by step, word by word, from the first moment two stairs crossed, from the first moment Snape sneered at Harry across the length of a classroom, from the first time Snape strode past Harry in the corridor without so much as sideways glance, and from the first glimpse of his meticulous marks in red ink over Harry's scribbles. And on, and on, every life's lesson thereafter, carrying on to its inevitable conclusion. But this story is not about lessons, or teachers, or even detention. Well, maybe a little bit about detention. On Tuesday night, between detentions, Harry notices Snape in the teacher's lounge. It's a room as ordinary as the Quidditch changing rooms, with nothing to make it memorable to him besides, perhaps, the chairs, which look far more comfortable than the libraries. As varied in design as they are in occupants, they shield the casual readers from the hurricane of daily hubbub, leaving everyone for themselves, a solitary bubble of peace amid the castle's hurried ways. Snape's in shadow, but his hands catch the light from a nearby chandelier. His fingers are bony and sallow, with ink stains at their tips. Snape holds his quill like a weapon as he skims through the potions quarterly. The metallic nib shines, poised to leave a mark on the margins any minute, but for now it only punctuates the silence as the narrow plume curls and brushes against his sleeve. Harry remembers a vision of Snape in class, a feathery tip tickling the corner of Snape's mouth and swallows down the urge to follow the quill with his stare until it flicks up, up, up. In the dark, the angles of Snape's face are rough and wrong, sunken cheeks and deep-set eyes and pronounced shadows underneath. The nose is a statement of defiance in the face of beauty. His jaw has a hint of afternoon stubble, and is visibly tense, as if Snape spends his days, minutes, hours grinding his teeth together. Perhaps he does. Of course he does. Snape's neck is ravaged by ugly scars. Just the tip of the damage emerges above the high collar, but Harry had seen the greasy git in St. Mungo's before. He knows how far the scars stretch along the clavicle, bite marks cutting deep into the pale shoulder. Snape's hair is as greasy as ever and as shiny at the tip as the tips of his narrow boots. He is not by any stretch of the imagination a pretty sight, but there is something striking about him anyway. Snape's stare, when no one but Harry is watching, is dark and clever, the evidence for all manner of curious thoughts lurking within. As if Snape knows, down to the last embarrassing visual, what Harry is thinking this very second, or 
what Harry thinks about at night when no one is watching. Facing the man reminds Harry of seeing his reflection in the lake water at Hogwarts after the sun has set, and it is chilly and dark, darker still, where below the seaweed and the murky water the giant squid lies in wait and then suddenly plunges. It's an unsettling stare, all things considered. It's never stopped unsettling Harry in all the physical ways. He wouldn't read my mind without permission, or would he? Harry shoves the thought aside. He refuses to dwell on the idea that Snape and the Half-Blood Prince are the same people, refuses to remember that he once penned a gushing letter, might as well have been a love note to the prince, where he used phrases like, you're brilliant, a genius even, or and, you sound lonely, have you got someone, a girl maybe, or any family, and, if you need a friend or anything else, just the letter was never sent, so he can pretend it never happened, all solved, done, no need to think about it again, ever. Potter? Snape's voice is low and even. It's an acknowledgement, barely, but it's more than Harry's got in the past few months of brushing past the man in the corridors. Harry stops in his tracks, even though he was already headed for the door. And it's like he's a student again, with the telltale heat flooding his face. Would it kill him to call me Professor? He spent seven months being Professor Potter. Professor Potter is no longer a frazzled fourth year afraid to get caught in the corridors after curfew. Snape's eyes flash at him from his reading. Then. He slowly, ever so slowly, sets his quill aside, raises his hand to his lips, and licks the index finger before he flips to the next page. The page settles with a rustle, like a folded wing. There's a black and white drawing of a carefully preserved lavender plant. Snape's hand comes to rest over it, as gentle as if covering a sleeping bird. His touch spreads the pages apart, long fingers fanned out, wide with precision, middle finger thrust right into the center crease. The way the single digit is cradled by the paper suggests things that would be inappropriate to voice within earshot of the students, especially the upper years whose gossip already turns Harry's ears bright red. In any case, Harry doesn't browse through the dirty mags often enough to start seeing lascivious spectacles in everyday's encounters. He does so very rarely, in fact, so rarely that this one, visual, brings forth a vivid memory of last year's June centerfold. 
he gulps and feels a sudden need to loosen his collar. The candles floating about make the room far too warm. Snape, he croaks. After all, it is only polite to greet your colleagues back. Snape leans forward. His face is in candlelight now, and even candlelight does not flatter him in the least. A black strand of hair falls over his eye. It's out of place, and Harry puts his hands behind him to stop himself. He really should not reach out and touch it. Snape's brow lifts in question, and his chin juts out in the shadow of his sizable nose. With his robes gathered around him like fluffed-up feathers, he looks somewhat like an exotic bird, a raptor on the hunt. His head tilts, and Harry suddenly feels far too short, aware of every wrinkle of his robe and every unfastened button, every smudge on his glasses. Are you free tomorrow night? Harry blinks. The words might as well be Latin. Uh, is this what I think it is? Quick, what do I say? Yes? Was that too eager? That was, wasn't it? Oh, crap. He tries to contain his grin, but gives up fighting it after a long second. It probably looks like a pained grimace. Uh, arr. Perfect. Snape rises before him. The potion's quarterly hit caressed or molested in front of Harry's eyes remains on the table. The quill serves as a bookmark. Its black filaments extend just beyond the spine, ruffled by the movement of Snape's robes. Oh yes, I can do this, I've got this covered, Harry thinks. He seems to agree with the plain yes anyway, that's reasonable, isn't it? I plan to send Mr. Peters and Miss Davies in your office at six o'clock sharp for their detention. I do appreciate your cooperation on such short notice. Snape turns on his heel, quick and final, and Harry feels like an utter fool for thinking it was anything more than a favor to a fellow teacher. Oh, yeah, Harry says, following as Snape circles past him, trying not to sound quite so dejected. What did he think would happen anyway? Sure, two hours. Double that for Davies. Snape sneers sharply. Suddenly they are face to face again. They're almost the same height. So why does Harry always feel so short in front of him? And Potter? Yes? Snape lifts his hand and reaches for Harry's shoulder in a gesture far too deliberate. It's a surreal slow-motion moment. His fingers reach upwards and Harry turns, tilting his head down and almost, almost feels the heat of Snape's ghostly touch along his jaw. Is he doing what I think he is doing? Why? It's the same hand that a few moments ago had coaxed the book's pages to open in a such a 
mind-bogglingly stimulating manner. Slowly, casually, Snape adjusts and smooths down the collar on Harry's right side, and Harry's heart skips a beat, even though Snape's fingers never come in contact with his skin. He holds his breath and waits. Unasked question on his tongue. He isn't sure what all this means. He can only guess, but oh god, no way is this accidental. Much better. Snape's features soften just for a second, and Harry is aware he's staring like an idiot, but he can't help it. He drags his teeth over his lower lip, a terrible habit. No, I mustn't do that. He'll think I'm doing it on purpose. Am I? Oh, fuck. I think I am. Is it a trick of the light, or did Snape's eyes just widen? His hand stills halfway between them, and then, just like that, Snape summons his reading and his quill and strides past Harry out of the teacher's lounge, his footsteps echoing in the corridor without so much as a goodbye. Harry is left behind to adjust his robes down his front and stand there wondering, what the hell just happened? He pushes his glasses up his nose and stares at the dark green upholstery of an empty chair that just a minute ago framed one Severus Snape. And then he squints around the empty room. A grin crosses his face, and he isn't even sure why he's beaming. Cautiously, he raises his hands up shutting his eyes tight as he tilts his head toward the tall ceiling. Yes! It is, coincidentally, the exact pose a younger Harry Potter once assumed during a Quidditch match after ensuring a Gryffindor victory by catching the Golden Snitch. It's certainly more impressive with a soaring broomstick between one's thighs, holding one 20 feet in the air over the roaring crowd, but it's the feeling of ascending upwards into the sky, surrounded by victorious cheering that counts. Harry hates marking essays. Who loves that sort of thing? Probably Snape. The task is far more boring than writing them. To punish himself, he summons the stack of them during Peter's and Davis's detention and decides to slog through two uncomfortable tasks in one go. While the two Ravenclaws, what did the swatty sods do to deserve an evening's worth of detention from Snape? huddle over a dismantled suit of armor, polishing its various parts, he squints at a third year's attempt to describe a Grindelow habitat. His thoughts keep wandering back to the encounter in the teacher's lounge, to the quiet, possessive way 
Snape's stare captured his attention. To the steady sweep of his fingers across Harry's collar. How would it feel if Snape's fingertips strayed just half an inch, perhaps, upwards? Harry brings his hand up to the right side of his neck and tries it, tracing a path above his starched collar. A slow, steady line. His nail drags below his jaw, catching skin. And then it tipped my head upwards and... Uh, wow. Perhaps he isn't as into girls as he thought all through school. But Snape? Holy fuck, did it have to be Snape? Maybe Harry developed some sort of an adrenaline reaction to the swooping and the traded insults. Maybe I really am a masochist. He groans, and the only thing that stops him from burying his face in his folded arms is the knowledge of the two students in the room, watching closely. He draws a deep breath instead and rubs his temples to ward off a headache. Well, he calls out, Davis, are you aware that the Vambrace is on backwards? Peters, you can stop polishing the helm. The pauldrons still want cleaning. This His stone comes out sour and stern, almost like Snape's. <sighs> That's the last thing I'm after, scaring the students like that. They don't need a second teacher in the school treating them like dirt. Now, what have you learned today? He adds, milder. Davis's nose wrinkles up. No fighting in the vicinity of potions ingredients, sir. Mr. Peters's left eye is accented by a spectacular bruise. Miss Davis's jaw sports a series of scratches. And is that a bite on her wrist, really? Ravenclaws fight dirty. Who would have thought? Well, Harry says, I hope you learned your lesson for today. Peters, you may go after you reassemble the suit of armor on its pedestal. Davis, please return to my office tomorrow at 6 p.m. They both nod and scurry to put the various squeaking parts together again. Before the girl leaves, Harry shakes his head and can't help but wonder. Davis? Yes, Professor Potter? What did you do in Snape's class to get double the detention Peters did. She sighs and looks down at her toes. I called Peters a pusillanimous pansy, sir. Harry humps in what he hopes is a disapproving, stern and all-knowing manner. It's rather difficult to be staring down a younger version of Hermione. Davis's mouth twists in a bitter smirk. I didn't mean it. Maybe just a little. I should have called him a pernicious prat instead, but he didn't let me to get that bit in. He already lunged and scratched my face. Harry's mouth twists. He studies the unfortunate student and sighs, staring down through his glasses to convey deep disappointment. 
recalling Professor McGonagall's stare helps a lot. He counts to seven to drive home the grave significance of her error and then waves her off. Tomorrow at six, don't be late. She disappears through his office door and then, only then, does he sag back in his chair and push his glasses up to his forehead so he can rub his face. No one ever told him teaching was hard. Snape would probably sneer and spit out something completely sarcastic. Snape would probably know what Pusillanimous meant right off the bat too. Damn him. Harry groans and summons a dictionary. He shakes his head as he leaves through to the peas. Kids these days. For a second, he pauses, holding the book open, then tilts his head as if thinking back on something. Carefully, ever so carefully, he uses his middle finger to part the pages, pushes it down, and drags it across the formed fold. It's not as graceful, not to mention downright dirty, as when Snape did it, but it makes Harry feel like quite an experienced reader indeed. The next time Harry encounters Snape, he's drawn the short straw and has to supervise a Hogsmeade trip for a boisterous group of mixed house students. It's exhausting even to think about, so when he finally considers dropping by the three broomsticks to celebrate a hard day work, it's a challenge to steer himself away from the tempting thought of a hot drink. After all, he has the same group of students to coax back to Hogwarts grounds in about half an hour. Besides, a teacher has a reputation to maintain, and that reputation likely includes not setting a bad example for the impressionable fourth years ambling underfoot. It is with deep regret that Harry does not in fact nip into the three broomsticks for a pint, but stays outside, keeping an eye on various stragglers and Madame Potiphets and Zonkos. It's during a particularly yawn-worthy hour from 3pm to 4pm that he sees Snape disappearing into Herodwin's cauldrons and his Sunday suddenly becomes far more interesting. He smiles and brings his hand to the side of his neck, adjusting his collar awkwardly as if in memory of what transpired in the teacher's lounge. The phantom warmth against the side of his neck is certainly imaginary, but the idea of Snape someday repeating the gesture warms up his insides on a chilly afternoon faster than fire whiskey ever could. It takes Harry all of a half a second to turn toward Herodwin's cauldrons and start walking. Even though he sees no students spending their time amid the stacks of the proprietor's famed self-stirring wares. A doorbell in the shape of a miniature silver teapot rings melodically as Harry steps through the entranceway. He peers past the tall stacks of cauldrons, copper, iron, pewter and stone in all possible shapes and sizes, hoping to spot Snape among them. After all. The sour sod is in his element here. 
Maybe he'd be slightly happier and more willing to strike up a conversation than during Harry's regular encounters with him at Hogwarts. He searches the aisles for the familiar dark-robed, looming figure and almost knocks over a stack of copper cauldrons taller than himself. Whoa, he hadn't seen that coming. A hand lands on his shoulder and yanks him from the narrow aisle into the light. Suddenly brought face to face with Snape, Harry finds himself short of breath, butterflies swarming in his stomach. Oh. <sighs> Hi, uh, do you need any help carrying anything or? Harry presents his finest winning grin and hopes for the best, as in Snape not inquiring what the hell he's doing here, what with all the students to herd back to the castle. Which, of course, Snape promptly does, displaying his empty hands and replying with his eyes narrowed. Not at the moment. Harry tries not to stare, he really does. The fingers of Snape's left hand rest ever so gently on the rim of a brass cauldron, the index finger smoothing the tapered ridge. It's mesmerizing to watch. You seem lost. May I direct you toward an exit? I'm good, thanks. Harry deadpans. It's just cauldrons. Besides, if I could fondle a dictionary, I can definitely handle a cauldron. Huh. And suddenly it feels a whole lot less awkward to stand here in a narrow shop aisle with Snape, so close that the tips of their boots almost touch. Harry shoves his hands deep in his pockets and raises his chin defiantly. I think my interest in cauldrons has grown lately. Yeah, who doesn't need a good sturdy cauldron in their life? I could use a spare. Hoping his hands won't shake, he reaches up and attempts the terrible, wonderful act of smoothing his palm over Snape's buttoned cloak. A spare? Snape's brows climb up. Well, well, I never would have pegged you for a cauldron lover. Maybe I am. Harry makes a show of peering around the pewter and brass stacks. I am even thinking of getting one today for brewing. What would you suggest for a beginner? Enlighten me. Just what are you planning to brew? Harry shrugs. Who plans these things anyway? Sometimes they just happen. Like running into Snape in a Hogsmeade shop, completely accidental. Quick, how am I gonna explain this one? I need something I can brew. What can I brew? Tea, mulled wine, Felix Felicis, because I need every damn drop right about now. If you don't know what you're after, perhaps you shouldn't be here at all. Hmm? And with that, Snape places his hand on Harry's shoulder, steadying him in place, then sidesteps him and swiftly moves toward an exit. All Harry can do is gulp for air and try not to topple any of the stacks. Ah, what did I say wrong? 
Hang on a sec, Snape. The dark figure stills, not quiet, at the door. Harry bites his lip. It's actually my first cauldron. Since school, that is. But I know what I'm after. Something reliable. Have you got any recommendations? Snape's eyes narrow, as if he is considering something that warrants deeper thought. You can't go wrong with pewter. Standard size, too. You should know this by now, or were my lectures that forgettable? On the contrary, Harry says, beaming, I remember them quite clearly, even now. Thanks, Professor. Snape delivers a curt nod, and with that, the silver teapot at the entryway rings once as he stalks out, disappearing into the busy crowds. Well, are you going to stand there and leer or buy something, lad? The clerk at the counter grumbles into his beard. He taps an accordion-like cylindrical contraption on his lap, and it promptly collapses flat, a pair of small handles protruding on both sides. The old man stacks it like a record onto the shelf alongside a dozen others like it. Collapsible cauldrons, the sign above the shelf proclaims in twelve-inch letters. So easy a six-year-old can wield it. An article on young Bruno Schmidt killing an urkling with one is pinned below, and Harry can't help but be distracted by the photos of a rosy-cheeked urchin holding the collapsible cauldron in front of him, like a giant shield. Were you in Slytherin? The old clerk inquires. By the sound of things, Snape's taken a liking to you. Can't imagine him growing this fond of anyone else. Harry blinks and has the urge to check whether he's wearing a glamour he's forgotten about. Uh, no, I'm a professor here at Hogwarts. Wait, is the old man completely blind? He takes a few steps to the left. Sure enough, the man keeps looking at the empty spot where Harry had been standing until the floorboard creaks, and then he faces Harry again, smiling generally as he stuffs his pipe. The name tag pinned to a cabled grey jumper glistens with a runic script, Morda. Harry frowns and pushes his glasses up his nose. Uh, how could you tell he liked me? The old man cackles. You flirted with him in a cauldron shop, and you're still standing. That was as bold as brass, lad, and I do know brass by now. So, about that cauldron, Peter, you say? The third time Harry sees Snape, they're outside on the Quidditch pitch, with a Slytherin Gryffindor match coming up in three, two, one, go Gryffindor! Their seeker isn't as good as Harry would like, but hey, the keeper is brilliant. Harry quickly takes his seat in the stands meant for the school professors. It's still odd to be sitting here and watching the game instead of flying out there. That's a novelty he has yet to get used to. There's an empty space on a bench next to him, and he sees Snape making his way up the staircase, cloak billowing in the wind 
like a great batwing. Harry gathers up his courage to wave and grin and then points to the seat next to him and makes an inviting gesture. Snape shakes his head. Of course not. Who'd want to sit next to someone cheering for your team to lose? But with a decisive stride, Snape pushes through and chooses one of the empty seats behind Harry, so close that Harry can feel Snape's cloak sweep his back. With a rustle, Snape settles down. If Harry turns his head just a bit, he can see the tip of a shiny black boot resting right behind him, in line with his hand on the seat. This means Snape's knee is almost touching Harry's shoulder, and if Harry ever did something as rash as turn around and stare, he'd likely face Snape's crutch, front and center, which isn't something advisable for two blokes in the middle of a Quidditch crowd cheering for the opposite teams, or two blokes in the middle of any crowd ever. Harry gulps and rubs the back of his neck. Don't turn. Whatever you do, don't turn around. And then, amid the roar of the crowds and the commentator's clear voice, at the wave of Headmistress McGonagall's wand, the banners unfurl, a glorious golden and crimson, followed by a silver striped with green, and the match finally begins. Ten minutes into it, the quaffle is passed around between the teams and the keepers are doing their jobs. There is no sign of the snitch yet and Harry forgets himself and leans back to watch the skies. It's as subtle as a stolen kiss, the brush of a knuckle against his back. Harry mistakes it for a breeze at first, but then the wind dies down. It's warm, definitely a human touch. Two fingers sweep across his nape and brush through his hair. Harry inhales sharply and doesn't move, doesn't make a sound. He's scared that if he shifts even an inch, the hand at the back of his neck would disappear, never to return. Around him, the crowds cheer on Jones, who narrowly avoided a bludger. Harry takes another breath, and even though he should probably hold still, he leans back and cautiously presses his head against the warmth of that hand. It cradles him on one side, barely brushing his ear and tickling along his earlobe. And then, just like that, it's gone, leaving Harry to wonder whether it was there at all. The whole length of the game, chills run up and down his spine, and he gives up questioning what it was all about. Instead, as the match progresses to its inevitable conclusion, Gryffindor has to win, has to. Harry has a bet going, and he isn't losing three galleons again this week. Harry looks off to the side and reaches back and slides a careful hand 
over a polished black boot and then harden his throat, curls his fingers around a shiny leather ankle. <laughs> Merlin, what am I doing? What if it's not him? What if... Shit. <laughs> what if a student sees us? Or worse, the headmistress. <laughs> Bloody hell, this is bad. But their seats are off to the side and no one's next to him. And clearly all anyone's watching is Rosemary Brown and Hildegard Healy elbowing each other 30 feet in the air in pursuit of the snitch. And then... The solid weight of Snape's hand marks Harry's shoulder, his thumb moving back and forth so steadily, so slowly, that Harry holds back a moan. What's wrong with me? This isn't a game. He feels a breath against the back of his head and turns, so Snape's next breath is against his ear. Snape huffs in amusement. Is it funny to him? Harry squeezes the leather ankle and feels the boot nudge gently against its palm. Care to place a bet, Potter? Snape's voice is an unmistakable rumble. The hand at Harry's shoulder squeezes and... Let's go. I like Healy's odds. Yeah, right. Harry bites his lip and finally turns around, looking cautiously up at that sardonic smirk. Above them, Brown's gaining ground on the snitch. Sure, what are we betting? Snape's lips curve, and he studies Harry in that warm, scrutinizing way that makes Harry's heart rate pick up. A proper meal. Harry tries to breathe, really tries. He's aware of his own lips parting, but no words are coming out. Which one of us is... Oh, right. He probably just means dinner somewhere, as in dinner with Snape. Whoa dinner with Snape. Well, Harry grins and nods, letting go of Snape's boot. He pulls his glove off and offers his hand to Snape to seal the deal. Done. Just as Snape's long-fingered hand slides into his grip and squeezes, the crowd erupts in applause. Brown lets out an angry shout, and Healy soars, waving the snitch over her head. Damn it. Thanks again to Acid for speaking with me and for that excellent reading. Go to our website at snapechatpodcast.com for links to Acid's amazing art and stories. And here you must say goodbye. We wish we didn't have to, but it hasn't escaped our notice that life isn't fair. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Tumblr and Twitter, or leave a comment on our website at snapechatpodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
Many thanks to Nix for our continued work on our website. Support us on Coffee to help defray costs of production. That's ko-fi.com. Be sure to check out Care of Magical Shepherds podcast and alwaysnake.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay snarky.